Well, Merry Christmas, church. Great to be with you this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Philippians. That's where we're going to land in just a few minutes. Philippians chapter 2. So go ahead and find your place there. And we are nearing the end of a series that we've been walking through for the entire year called The Story. We started way back in January with Genesis and creation, been preaching through God's Word. You've been reading through God's Word, walking through in your life group. So today we come to a letter from Paul to a church at Philippi, and the next week we're going to wrap it up. We're going to land in the book of Revelation and kind of draw this series to a close as we walk through God's Word faithfully uh, together this year. So it's been a joy to do that with you. Great to hear the stories of how many of you uh, would say, it's the first time I've ever read through the whole Bible in a year. It's been incredible to see how everything fits together, and we're going to bring that to a conclusion Uh, next week. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be in just a minute. Now, uh, Paul is writing here a letter to the church at Philippi, and it's not a Christmas card that he's writing, but at the very center of this letter is really the Christmas story. Uh, It's not a Christmas card, but it has right in the middle the story of the incarnation of Christ. And why it matters why it's significant for you and me, this season that we're celebrating, the fact that God became a man. And Paul's going to dive down into this in what theologians call a jewel of Scripture. And we're going to dig down into this in just a moment. But uh, one of the traditions of Christmas is Christmas cards. I mean, I, I love getting Christmas cards. I like writing Christmas cards, and I really like receiving Christmas cards. My favorite Christmas cards are the ones that have a little gift card tucked away in there, right? We are to my favorite restaurant, which is Bonefish Grill. I'm just saying, if any of y'all were taking notes, but we love getting Christmas cards. One of my favorite over the years types of Christmas cards are those that, that kids send me. They just have brought me so much joy and laughter as kids are just painfully honest and they'll write me these little notes at Christmas time and other times. So I thought I'd share a couple of these with you before we dive into this letter of Philipp, uh, Philippians. Uh, one was from a young man who sent me a note just a few weeks ago, just straight to the point, didn't beat around the bush, and I've actually put it up on the screen for you. He wrote this on our worship folder, and I don't know if you can read it, but it says this. At the top it says, to the preacher, P-R-E-E-C-H-R, and at the bottom it says, thank you for preaching. That's me. Just to the point. Preacher, thanks for preaching. Awesome. It's encouraging. Now, my top note I've ever received before was from a young man. This has been a little bit of time back. And here's what he says. He says, Dear Pastor Mike, you probably wonder why I'm writing this to you. Well, I'm writing to say thank you for preaching. Kind of a common theme. You could be at home watching TV or eating chips. (laughs) But you want to praise the Lord. You're taking hours out of your day to teach the Word of God. Thank you, sign Colby. So, in all honesty, this morning I had to make a decision. Doritos or go preach at church? It was a tough battle. Here I am. And I shared those with you just just to say the encouragement that it is when folks write us little notes and words of encouragement and Christmas cards and things like that. So from Paul, who's writing from a jail cell in Rome, chained to imperial guards, he has the capacity and the freedom to to write a letter 
back to a group of believers that he loves, just, just dearly loves. And right in the middle of this letter for us, Paul explains in really a way that nowhere else in Scripture tackles what went on, and this is so practically important for us this morning, what went on in the mind and the heart, if you will, of the Trinity, and particularly Christ Jesus, that led to Him taking on flesh and walking among us? What what was the mindset and the mind of humility that our Lord had in taking on flesh and stepping down from, from the thrones of eternity to take on flesh and walk among us. I'm going to read a couple verses here and then we're going to make a couple applications to our lives. So follow along. I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what Paul says. He says, Have this attitude, attitude, this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right, what was his way of thinking? What's, what are you talking about here, Paul? Verse 6, who, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God. Now, we're going to break this down, so I'm going to try to resist stopping at each verse, but there's so much here. Paul said, I want to be very clear. We're talking about God here. Who, Although he existed in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. What does that mean? Verse 7. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He, he laid something aside. He emptied himself and took something on. He took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. He became a man. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You see this theme continually drawn through this, the picture of humility of Christ that we see here. He humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient, how? How obedient? To the point of death. What kind of death? Even the death of a cross. And that's so significant there. Paul stresses that, that in the mind of a Jew, or in the Jewish mindset, Hanging on a cross, which was the most brutal form of execution known that's ever been known. No one, hanging was a curse. Cursed are those, the Old Testament says, that hang on a tree. The Jews saw the cross as a form of hanging. They saw it as a curse. It was a shameful thing. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says the Jews see the cross as a stumbling block. How could the Messiah ever hang in such a shameful way? And that's why Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross-type death. Verse 9, For this reason also God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You see the humiliation of Christ, and now you see the exaltation of Christ as Paul is writing here. The name which is above every name. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Oh, by the way, there is a day in the future every knee will bow to King Jesus. Right? Every tongue. And who is that? Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, those who are under the earth. That's everybody. Will bow to King Jesus. Verse 11. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, 
Here in this passage, sunk right in the middle of the, the letter of the of Philippians, Paul is teaching us the implications of the incarnation for you and me. My goal really this morning, as we were here in our reading this week, if you're, as you're reading through the story, is that none of us walk out of here today and we pass a manger scene, or we sing a Christmas carol, or we celebrate all that we do at Christmas without stopping and pausing and realizing the magnitude of the miracle that is God becoming a man and walking among us. Paul is teaching an incredible truth here of all that went into what theologians call the incarnation, God becoming a man. But here's the kicker, ready? Paul is not teaching this just for our information He's not just teaching this as a theological position. He's teaching this as a point of challenge because he's going to come back and say, watch this. Here it is. Ready? Whatever attitude, way of thinking that was in Christ that led him to humble himself by stepping from heaven down to earth, whatever attitude that is, Paul says, verse 5, hey, believer, Christ follower, Christ in you, have that attitude in yourself. Have that attitude in yourself. So what was that attitude? What, what is the humility of Christ here that we see in the incarnation? How does the reality of the incarnation affect the way I live my life today? Because it does. It affects everything about our life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you, I'm going to share with you a few truths, three or four truths, and then give you a couple points of application, okay? So what do we learn from this passage, Philippians 2? Number one, don't want to miss this. Paul says this very clearly, verse 5 and verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God. Truth number one is this. Jesus is God himself. Don't lose sight of that. Yes, a baby in a manger. Yes, the Savior that's come. Yes, the Messiah. He is the second person of the Godhead who has existed forever and ever and ever. There was never a time he didn't exist. There will never be a time that he will not exist. And there was never a time that he wasn't God. Almighty God. And Paul starts this argument here to get that stake driven in the ground. The baby that we're talking about, the incarnation that we're talking about is God. No less than God. Eternal God. We know from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God forever and ever and ever. Creator God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So this Christ Jesus that we're talking about, and whatever this attitude was, we're talking about God who has existed forever. We're talking about Creator God who with a word spoke everything into being, and by the word of His power, Hebrews 1, holds all things together. Why does the world hold together as it does? Because King Jesus is holding it together. That's the God we're talking about. Eternal God. Creator God. So, now this is building. Hang with me here. When we talk about Jesus, 
the babe in the manger, and we sing away in the manger. And we sing these Christmas songs, Emmanuel, Messiah, Savior. We sing Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We pass the manger scene on the road. We've got, we've got to remember, draw, drive this into your heart and soul this morning. The one we are worshiping is eternal creator, God the Son, who has always been, will always be. He exists outside of time and space. He stepped into time and space. The one without any limitations, who took on limitations. The one who everything exists for and through. He is God, and he has taken on flesh and dwells among us. Get your mind around that for a minute. Paul's going somewhere with this argument. You're not going to understand the rest of it if you don't drive that stake in the ground. God, therefore, any step, any movement of Christ, the second person, to step from that privilege of being God into humanity, into limitation, into space... Any step toward that, watch this, is a step of immense humiliation and humility. That's the point. In other words, he is stepping down. <laughs> you, don't, you can't get any higher than eternal God who's existed forever and holds all things together. You don't go any higher than that. Any step from that to step into humanity was a stepping down for God the Son. Now hang with me. C.S. Lewis said it this way. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity. He goes down to come up again and bring the whole broken world up with Him. It is a step of massive humility for the God of the universe, Christ Jesus, to take on flesh and walk among us. Now, that's truth number one. Jesus is God. Don't lose that. Truth number two. Paul says, okay, he existed in the form of God. Truth number two is this. Jesus gave up the privileges of being God. Now, he never gave up or never ceased to be God. Don't lose sight of that. That's massively important. But he did lay aside the privileges of being God. Where do you get that from? 2.6 Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. The word grasp means to cling to. He didn't regard it a thing to be held on to. Why? He emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? This is the language of, take, of laying something aside that is mine. A privilege or a right that I rightfully have that's mine. And I lay it aside for the good of another. Philippians 2.6 in the New Living Translation says this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clung to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position as a slave. So the argument that Paul is building here is this attitude of Christ, whatever it is, involves never ceasing to be God, but yet willingly laying, a, laying aside for a season some of His privileges of being God. What are some of those privileges? You read through the New Testament, there's multiple things that Jesus laid aside to step into humanity. Number one, He laid aside outward visible glory. He wasn't worried about appearance, if you will. 
In other words, he existed with infinite glory, visible, known glory forever and ever and ever. But he masked that glory by taking on humanity and stepping in among us. We know that from Isaiah 53 that says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a a root in dry ground. What does that mean? Nothing glamorous about a root sticking up out of dry ground. It's just an old root. Doesn't attract any attention. It's not impressive. Says there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, talking about the Messiah, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. King Jesus, who had dwelt in perfect glory for all eternity, laid that aside, took on the limitations of humanity, and laid aside the privilege of outward visible glory. Secondly, he laid aside the privilege of independent authority. What does that mean? What's this? This is huge because this is going to get really practical for you and me. He laid aside the privilege of declaring his own will and submitted his will to his Father. John 5.30, I do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of my Father who sent me. He laid aside his own agenda. Laid aside. He's God. Thirdly, he laid aside eternal riches. Eternal riches. I mean, can you imagine what it's like dwelling in eternity within the Trinity? Limitless, limitless resources, not bound by any limitations whatsoever. Infinite glory, infinite power, infinite wealth, infinite treasure. Whatever that looks like in eternity, it's even hard to get our mind around it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. He became a baby and was born in a manger to peasants. He owned nothing. The God who owns everything subjected himself to the limitations of owning nothing whatsoever. Wow. He laid aside the fourth thing very quickly. He laid aside a unique, intimate, face-to-face fellowship relationship he had with the Father. Now, again, the dynamics that work within the Trinity and eternity, we can't get our minds around that completely. Here's what we know from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word with is the word pros, which in the original language means face-to-face. If I'm with somebody, I'm face-to-face. And that's the word picture, that Jesus for all eternity, the second person of the Trinity, enjoyed, what's this, a depth. Of relationship with his father that we can't even imagine or conceive of. And for a season was willing to lay that aside. To take on humanity and dwell in time and space limited by his being a man. Incredible. Incredible. So what do you do with this? What, what, what do we do with this question? And here's where it gets really practical for you and me. I, I'm reading along this this week, and I'm studying, I'm getting ready for here. And it's, it's one of those, Lord, always take what I'm trying to prepare and sink it down into my heart before I ever try to stand up and teach it. Here's the question. Have you ever, have you ever been in a position where you were asked or challenged to give up something or sacrifice something for the good of someone else? Are you even maybe now in a situation where 
your life is consisting of you having to sacrifice something or give up something that is purely for the benefit of another. Maybe it's a privilege that you're having to lay aside. Maybe it's a preference that you're having to die to. Maybe it's a position that you're walking away from. Maybe it's a plan you have to die to. Maybe it's comfort that you're giving up. Maybe it's prominence or prestige or status or whatever it may be. Listen, that's called life. That's the attitude of Christ. And here's the application. You ready? None of us as followers of Christ will ever give up anywhere near what was given up by our Lord when He laid aside the privileges of being God to come and dwell among us. Never anywhere even close. Not even close. So I'm reading this and I'm getting in the flesh and I'm... I'm, thinking this week about some sacrifices that maybe I have to make or some things that may not go my way or a schedule that's not working out like I want it to or some things in the future that I see there. And here's what I have to say. After reading this, in light of the glory and the beauty and the humility of Christ, here's what I had to say to myself. Get over yourself, big boy. Get over yourself. Right? Jesus was no less than God. Jesus laid aside the privileges of being God for a season. And thirdly, Jesus took on the role of a human servant. What does that mean? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, but he emptied himself and he took on. Don't miss that language. He laid something aside, the privileges, and he takes something on. He took on, verse 7, the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus took on something that, didn't, that he didn't know before. What was it? Humanity. The one who created humanity, breathed in us the breath of life, now takes it on with all of its limitations. Frailties, weaknesses, sufferings. Jesus grew when he was a child. He grew when he was older. He suffered. He was tormented by pain and anguish we know that from the garden of eden he or from the garden of gethsemane we know he was tempted in all things as we are listen you can't say well nobody knows what i'm going through hebrews 4 says that in his humanity jesus experienced everything you're going through that you now have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with you in your weakness he experienced all of it in his humanity he took on flesh paul says that's not all it's, it's like a stair step. So, so he lays it aside, then he takes on humanity, but it doesn't stop there. Paul says he took on the form of a bondservant. He didn't come as a king, didn't come as a dignitary. He comes as a servant. The word doulos, bondservant, is translated, literally means a slave, one who is in a permanent relationship of servitude to another, his will being altogether consumed by the will of another. Jesus took the lowest form he could take. He took on the role of a servant. Again, stepping down, stepping down, stepping down. In humility. Great humility. The picture that Paul holds out here is don't lose sight of it. God laid aside these privileges. God took on this responsibility. Here's the application. Ready? Have you ever been asked to take on a role or a position or a place of service and you would never say it, you would never maybe verbalize it, but in your mind you're thinking, I'm just too good for this. 
Man, I'm going backwards. You might never articulate, but this is just beneath me. And then you come to Philippians 2, and you've got to conclude this. Ready? No position you and I will ever be assigned or take. No position we will ever be assigned or take can even compare to the humiliation of God taking on the form of a servant. can never compare to that. I think this is probably most pictured of the humiliation of Christ and what He willingly took on in John 13, the night before He was crucified. Maybe you know the story. You don't have to look it up. I'll just tell it to you briefly because it pictures what you see in Philippians 2. Jesus and His disciples are going to have dinner. They're having the Passover meal. In those days, they didn't eat at tables. They ate laying down on cushions. You probably know this. They all walked in. They wore sandals. It was muddy. It was dirty. It was grimy. They didn't have pavement. So whatever they walked through, they carried with them on their feet. Refuse and dung and all. I mean, the worst you can think of. So they come to dinner. They're all laying there. It's time to eat. None of the disciples even think about the fact that there's no servant there to wash their feet. It was customary that someone in the house washed feet. They're all sitting around eating. They're chowing down. They're having a good old time. John's feet are up in Peter's face, and Peter's feet are over in you know Matthew's face, and it's just all. It, it, and Jesus looks around and goes, he realizes it. Now watch this. The lowest, the lowest of low assignments in a household was the foot washer. It's the lowest. Can't go any lower. Because you're, you're, you're wiping the grime out between the toes of people who have been out in the world. You can't get any lower. The Bible says this. They're all sitting around. And Jesus, watch this. God gets up from the table says he took his garments and he laid them aside and he went over to the door and he took on the towel of a servant and he wrapped himself in the servant towel, picked up the basin and he goes to Peter and the other disciples and he starts to wash their feet. He laid aside his privileges. He took on the servant's robe and he, bo- he, he bowed down to these men, these sinful, wretched men like us and washed their feet. And we're to read that and we're to say, that's the attitude of Christ in me. No step of service, no act of humility, no position I'll ever take on can ever even come close to the humiliation of God becoming a foot washer. Dirty, nasty feet. So what's the point here? What do we do with this? Well, a couple points of application. Paul said not only did he become a bond slave, he takes it a step further and he says he took on the form of a servant, verse 7, being found in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He went all the way to death. And then Paul says, even, even a cross type death. Now again, if you're a Jewish mindset and you read this, It's a stumbling block for you. I said it earlier. In the mind of a Jew, only those cursed hang on a tree. (laughs) Only those who are cursed. So it's the most shameful death even imaginable. So here it is. Christ, God, becomes a man, takes on servanthood, becomes a bond slave, takes on a foot washer, dies in our place, and dies the most humiliating, shameful form of death ever known to man. And Paul lays that out here in Philippians chapter 2. That 
is the incarnation of Christ. God became a man. Now, what do I do with that? What do you do with that? Well, we know from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul did not write this merely for information, right? He's not writing this and saying, okay, hold on to this theological position so you'll get your theology right, even though it's very important to have your theology right. But he says this, whatever attitude that I'm getting ready to lay out, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. Wow. Here's truth number four, quickly. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the greatest picture of humility in the history of the world. No one has ever stepped from a higher place and taken a lower place than King Jesus. No religious leader in the global scale of all the religious leaders can even hold a candle to the Creator, eternal God, becoming a foot washer and dying a sinner's death on a cross. Nobody. So Paul says here, in humility, Christ has stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Humility is this attitude. Here's my question from the beginning, and here's where we're going to finish. How does then the reality of the incarnation change your life today and on Monday morning? I'm going to give you two steps of application, two points of application straight out of Philippians. Ready? What do we do with this? How does it change our life? Application number one is this. The incarnation of Jesus shapes our perspective on all of life's circumstances. So what do you mean by that? I don't understand that. Let me give you an illustration. Philippians 1.12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Paul at the beginning of the letter. Paul's been building up to this huge passage in 2.5. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances... Circle that word. Circumstances. What circumstances, Paul? The situation I currently find myself in is this. I said it earlier. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's lost his privileges. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his rights. He is living as a slave. He's chained to a guard. He has every reason in the world to say, I'm a Roman citizen. This is not fair. I shouldn't be here. I didn't sign up for this. He does not see his situation as that because he has the humility of mind of Christ. And he sees his situation this way. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everywhere else. In other words, all these guys that are come chained to me 24 hours a day, guess what they're hearing? They're hearing about Jesus Christ. And if it means I have to be chained here, and it means I have to lose my rights, and it means I have to sacrifice, that's okay, because here's what he's going to no situation, no position that I'll ever be put in or that I'll ever have to endure through can even come close to God becoming a man. Stepping out of heaven, taking on limitations, and becoming a foot washer who died on the sinner's cross. Nothing we'll ever face, no situation we'll ever endure can even compare. Right? Have this attitude in yourselves 
which was also in Christ Jesus. So the incarnation affects my perspective on all of life as a follower of Christ. Second application point, we'll finish here. It affects my perspective, but oh man, it drastically transforms the way I treat people. Now listen, application number two is this. The incarnation of Jesus pictures the way we relate to people, particularly, particularly my brothers and sisters in Christ. See, okay, where are you getting that from? Back up in chapter 2, before you even get to verse 5, here's the context Paul is writing. Verse 1, I'll read it to you quickly, make a couple applications, and we'll close. Paul says this, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Paul, from his house arrest, chained to a praetorian guard, dearly loves the Philippians. He loves these people. Here's what he's concerned about. How are you treating each other? Are you, are you loving each other with the love of Christ? He, see, he reminds them of what they have in Christ. He says there's encouragement in Christ. There's consolation of love in Christ. There's fellowship of the Spirit. There's affection and compassion. The affection and compassion of God has been poured out on you. Verse 2, he says, if these things are true of you. Verse 2, make my joy complete. How, Paul? Come and get me out of jail. Nope, it's not what he says. It says, make my joy complete, watch this, by being of the same mind. That there's a unity of mind that's shared among believers. Not uniformity, not clones, not part of a cult where we all dress alike, talk alike, walk alike, we're all just alike. That's not, that's uniformity, that's not unity. Biblical unity is the same mind around the biblical truth, around the gospel, around the truths of God's word that unites us and we think the same things because we think truth together. And there's a unity there. He says, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. The word same love there doesn't mean, okay, just love everybody. That's not the idea. The idea is that those who are on the fringes and those who are unattractive and those who are more difficult to love, you love them just like you love the ones who are easy to love. There is a mutual oneness of love in the body of Christ. And let me just, let me just tell you something practically. Paul's talking about a unity and a love here among the believers that the world is longing for. That's the point. He says there's this unity of spirit. There's the same mind. There's, he says you're united in spirit. That's a beautiful word which literally means one soul. That our affections and our passions are such the same that we're going in the same direction. We've given our life to Christ. We give our life to Christ. We're living out the mission together. We're living for something together. We're one soul. And he said intent on one purpose. That we're going in the same direction of the gospel of Christ, making disciples. He said, listen, that's a unity I long for you. That's a unity I want you to have. And then he comes to verse 3 and he says, hold on, ready? Here's where it gets painfully convicting. He says there's enemies to that unity. Here's the reason most churches, most families, most marriages never experience that unity. Ready? Verse 3, he says this. This kind of unity that you can have because of Christ in you. There's an enemy. Do nothing, verse 3, from selfishness or empty conceit. The enemy of this kind of unity is nothing more than selfishness and empty conceit. Selfishness means the pride that divides. 
Pride always divides, by the way. Pride always slaughters relationships. Pride always draws, drives a wedge in marriages, in churches, in whatever relationships where people are together. He says, do nothing from selfishness, putting yourself on the throne. This is a pride that pushes for its own way, demands its own rights, claims its own privileges, wants its own status, wants its own position. You see where Paul's going. He says, do nothing from empty conceit. Empty conceit is seeking my own personal glory, my own position. I want my name above everybody else. My preferences are more important than yours. On and on and on. He says, do nothing this way, but with humility of mind. By the way, the most distinguishing characteristic of Christ that you see in the New Testament, the word he used to describe himself was the word humble. Humility of mind. You regard, and here it is, here's your definition. What does humility mean? You regard one another as more important than yourself. Wow. He goes on, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I just tell you, verse 3 and 4. You want to know what I yearn for this church? You want to know what I yearn for my family? You want to know what, if churches would just get... If this alone was lived out in churches, you're talking about a unity that the world longs for and the world is a different place. Here's the good news. If you're here as a follower of Christ, it is Christ in you and this is the attitude that is in you because Christ is in you. And that means you, as a follower of Christ, have the infinite capacity for humble, selfless service and radical love that the world can understand because the mind and the heart of Christ is in you, beloved. And this is the attitude that we are to have as we serve and walk with one another. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are more important than you. That means I might have to lay aside my schedule. I might have to lay aside my preferences. I might have to lay aside my personal agenda. I might have to lay some things aside. I might have to take some things on to have the mind of humility and the mind of Christ. I might have to take on some roles that are not comfortable. I might have to take on some assignments that I'm not comfortable with. Watch this. Let me get real practical. Here it is. I might have to step into a life group with people I don't even like. And they might ask me to share something about my own life. I'm not comfortable to do that. Guess what? It's not about you. It is easy to sit on the fringe and be a spectator and say, yeah, I'm all for unity. But when unity means I'm laying something aside and unity means I'm putting something on and I'm going to pursue community and I'm going to step into a life group where I have to live these things out, then it becomes a different story. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul goes into verse 5 through 9, and that's why he holds out the incarnation primarily in the context because that's how we are to treat one another in Christ. I might lay aside privileges. I might take on responsibilities I'm not comfortable with. Why is that? Because I have been transformed by the gospel of Christ. He is in me. And listen, that is the attitude of Jesus in me. And that, by the way, is what transforms the world. 
I'm going to ask David to come on up and just to begin to play softly. I'm going to close with a very quick illustration, and I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to be done. We're going to enter into really a time that I want you to wrestle with these things. I want you to wrestle with the Word of God. What is the Spirit of God convicting, challenging, leading, prompting? There's an illustration of a man named Robertson McQuilkin. Maybe you've heard of him. Robertson McQuilkin was serving as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He had served there for years and years, and he was at the height of his career. He sat at the height of his career of teaching, preaching, book deals. He led one of the most successful organizations in America, a model of success. In that year, he came to the crossroads of a major decision. His wife, Muriel, of 40 years, they'd been married 40 years, had been suffering with the beginning stages of Alzheimer's for the last 12 years. And now, that year came to the point where she needed a full-time caretaker. But the university he served needed a full-time president at a crossroads. So I have the letter here that he wrote to the board of directors at Columbia University. And I'm only going to read part of it. He says this. He says, I haven't in my life experienced many easy decisions. But one of the simplest and easiest and clearest decisions I've ever made, I'm making today. Said Muriel now in the last couple of months seems to be most happy and satisfied and content when she is with me. And almost never happy when she's not with me. So now I've chosen that I must be with her. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible and my career possible. So if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would still be in her debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to do this. I get to do this. He said, I love her dearly. She is my joy. She is a delight. And it is an honor to lay something aside and take on this role of caregiver. So in the span of one week, Robertson went from leading or living in the presidential mansion to living in a very small, modest home, from running important meetings and making strategic decisions for caring for one woman who could not even speak and tell him thank you. Robertson continued to serve his wife for the next 13 years until she passed away. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? You just bow your head there for a moment before the Lord. It's what we call a response time, and I, I just trust that the Spirit of God is speaking, prompting, guiding as He uses His Word in our life. Maybe there's an area of pride in your life today that God has dealt with. You need to confess it, make it right. Be honest with Him, Lord. My attitude has not been humility, it has been pride. Maybe there's a role that's out there for you that you've been unwilling to take on because somehow, someway, You've rationalized it. You've talked the talk. But really, you think it's beneath you. Or maybe there's a person on the fringe who God's calling you to serve. And no one's going to applaud you. No one's going to know about it. But in humility and the mind of Christ, you go serve. Maybe you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This mind is not in you. And you're left only with self. Your decisions are driven by self. 
your motives are self-interest, all you can think about is the promotion of yourself. That's not Christ in you. Today, you can know the Lord Jesus Christ and He transforms that heart of self into the heart of humility, His heart. Right there where you're seated, call out to Him in faith. Jesus, I need You. I'm in sin. I'm in wickedness. I need You to save me of my sin. I give my life to You. Thank You for dying in my place and rising from the dead. Make me the kind of person You want me to be. If that's you after our service, we would love to speak with you one-on-one at the hub. Please come and talk to us if you're wrestling with a decision. For the rest of us, we're going to continue to praise and worship King Jesus. Just in the spirit of prayer, your heads bowed as David sings over us. I want you to continue to respond as the Lord leads you this morning.